Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's podcast. Before we get started, I just want to give a shout out and an apology to all of the amazing contributors to the site. Somebody had pointed out that my about section was years old and still reflected the old version of the site, uh, and I had completely forgotten about that. I had every intention of changing it, and I just slipped my mind. So although it's not really pretty at the moment, I did get a quick blurb in there about all of the main contributors to the site, as well as made sure to list some of the people that have taken the time to do some great one-off articles. And I also wanted to tell everybody that it's as far as the news posts go, anybody is really open to contribute. Maybe it's something that you might, you know, once a year want to do a post relevant to something you're working on. Or maybe it's just something that you're enjoyed, uh, you'd enjoy doing now and then. You know, maybe you'd want to be part of the team that checks the page and sees which news articles are, uh, you know, up, queued up to get written but aren't written yet. So we've picked the topic to talk about but haven't had a chance to write a blurb. If you have like an hour a week to kill or something, maybe you'd want to just jump in and always check out that list and see if it's something you're knowledgeable in and just write a very quick paragraph just to get the news up there. Because I do tend to fall behind sometimes with that working on other projects, as do the other writers. But anyway, the, this website's opening up for anything news-related. There were a bunch of people that contacted me about being able to contribute to the rest of the site. And I'm very sorry, I didn't, there was nothing personal. I didn't mean to blow anybody off. It's just not quite there yet. But we're getting there very quickly. So I'll have more news on that soon enough. For now, just a giant and heartfelt thank you to all the contributors making this site something awesome. It's very quickly becoming its own thing that's not about me, which was always the goal, so I'm very happy about that. Uh, now it's uh, just one step further to be able to promote everybody that's contributing, and as I said, anybody that wants to is welcome. So please just let me know, you know, at whatever scope of work you want. A quick blurb here and there, a cool thing like uh, uh, Todd posted the other day about the lag stuff, anything's welcome. But anyway, there's a lot to talk about this week, so let's jump into it. It looks like the game Cuphead will be released on the Nintendo Switch on April 18th. And I'd only gotten one chance to play it, but it did look like a very interesting and unique game. So definitely something that people, especially people who might be interested in retro gaming or 2D action style games, should try. And it also looks like they're trying to integrate Xbox Live support, even though it's the Switch version. So all of it seems to be pretty interesting and something that I'd like to see how it all pans out. But I would definitely like to give the game another try, because while I only had a few minutes with it at first, it seemed pretty interesting, and I think it was a little hard, too. So uh, let me give it another try. Developer Alan Sterenberg has gone back to all of the older Mr. Arcade cores and taken all of the updates that have been applied to some of the other cores, such as scalar updates and some accuracy bumps for some of the individual chips, and has gone back and worked on all of those original arcade cores. So things like Asteroids and uh, Super Breakout are now updated and a little bit more accurate with the better scalers built in. So this is a, a really giant undertaking for anybody working on any of these cores, so it's just really awesome to see people chipping in and getting it done. Um, and although I haven't had much time to use my mister, I absolutely, every time I turn it on, it's, a, it's either a really interesting or really enjoyable experience. So. I'm looking forward to playing some some of the other arcade cores that were added, as well as seeing the additions to the older ones. I'd like to welcome Jinobi, who just posted his first contribution to the site, which is appropriately about an unreleased game. The game Supreme GT for the original PlayStation was recently found, and he did a write-up about it, and he does like to concentrate on maybe some of the less common unreleased games that need more documentation, which I love, because some of the games that he's found I'd never heard of before, and while some of them are 
terrible, it's still a pretty awesome window into what could have been and the things that surrounded it. So for anybody interested, please check out his post. It's pretty awesome. Um, and obviously, if you're into weird, unreleased games, especially racing, then give this one a try. I recently just added a detailed guide on how to RGB bypass the Neo Geo AES to its own deck. So essentially the AES consoles have their own digital to analog converter that's pretty similar to what's on most of the MVS revisions. But it also has a Sony CXA encoder that takes it and breaks it out to composite and potentially S-video and RGB. A lot of revisions have issues related to that and the circuitry around it, and especially the Neo Geo version 3-6. So this guide is something that's not really, it's not new, and I certainly didn't invent it. It was all, uh, at least mine was based off of all of Pete from M-Monkey's work. And the only different approach that I took to it was that, of course, I bothered all of my electrical engineering friends to verify all this stuff with me. Uh, I tested everything on a scope, took as good of pictures as I could, and posted examples. So it's essentially everything that retro RGB guides already, or, or always were. It's, uh, you know, really piggybacking off of somebody else's original work and just digging in a little bit more detailed, which I genuinely mean as a compliment, by the way. I certainly don't mean that as a dig to Pete or anybody that did any of this work beforehand. But uh, skipping to the end, uh, all you have to do is remove a couple of components and then solder three resistors in its place. It really is that easy. Um, it's going to be slightly different components based on uh, whichever revision you have. And at the moment, I've only tested this on the 3.6, but I've had friends say that they've tested on pretty much every revision. Uh, but it's just the RGB caps and resistors that need to be removed. Um, so you could just trace that back from the multi-out if uh, yours doesn't look like this. And then you find the, these locations, which should be the same on many revisions, where it's just matching up the RGB lines from the original DAC and putting them directly onto the multi-out using some resistors. So you lose composite video out when you do it this way. Um, but in all honesty, at least on the 3.6 editions, it is absolutely worth doing. Um, of course, when I posted this, there were immediately a few people that said, my AES looks fine. And the two, the two comments I have towards that is, first of all, if it is fine, then if you think it's fine for you, don't touch it. You have a perfectly good, you know, expensive console, everything's fine. But if you said it's fine just because you didn't want to deal with another mod, maybe take another look at it because even some of the earlier revisions can be improved. And a lot of old consoles can have their outputs improved simply by moving the video signals off of the board. Which, not to get too technical here, but it's just, these things were designed to be good. They weren't designed for perfectionists who's going to blow up a 240p signal onto a 4K TV. So, uh, you know, I'm certainly not saying that they were designed, well, some were designed badly. Most of these consoles weren't. It's just a matter of now that we're able to blow these things up and see the details so greatly, usually taking a few steps to do simple stuff like this could improve the signal. Um, and if you've done this mod on different revision AESs, please post and let me know. Uh, just write down in the comments is probably good enough for now. I've been told that it seems to work on all of them, but I'd like some more verification or pictures if you have them. Uh, and also for people that do the mod, um, I did find a specific way that I recommend that you do the C-Sync because while you don't need to do it, it does clean up the signal a little bit better and sets the voltage at something that's a little bit more compatible. 
Um, for the record, none of the tests that I did, there is no wrong way to do it. It's not like if you've done the mod before or if you've had it done, there's no chance of it blowing out your equipment. It's not, you know, it's not anything like that. It's just doing it with the, the values that I recommended in the guide uh, of the resistors and the method of the capacitor and uh, the C-Sync line will get you the best voltage and the best, um, the best tweaks of everything. Trying to not nerd out, but also not sound like an idiot at the same time. It's the most tweaked you can get it verified by an oscilloscope, uh, captures that were blown up to 4K, and all of my super genius nerd friends who put up with me asking them a million questions about this stuff over and over. So uh, other than that, just check it out. There's, of course, always the thing of C-Sync versus composite sync on Neo Geos, because some have it connected. But if you're removing composite video like in this, it doesn't matter at all, and uh, it should work on every cable. So... Give it a try. Let me know what you think. Uh, and if nothing else, even if you just like an amusing one-minute video, check out the before and after video that I did that shows the uh, original 3.6's output versus what it looks like now. And there's no uh, messing with that video at all. That was just simply two captures that were st uh, stuck next to each other in Premiere. Um, there wasn't any trickery. That's really how big of a difference it looked. So anybody with a Neo Geo, give it a shot. Megacat Studios just announced a brand new Sega Genesis game called Lethal Wedding. And according to the developers, Lethal Wedding is an upcoming shooter for the Sega Genesis. It's the big day, but the groom has disappeared. The bride-to-be and her mother-in-law must put aside their differences as they uncover a drug ring masquerading as a circus and battle to save the man they both love. So they're calling it a top-down RPG shooter, and it looks both uh, visually impressive and hilarious both at the same time. So count me in whenever this one's released. Uh, not much more info on it yet, but if there is, I'll definitely keep everybody in the loop. There's a new device called the CPS2 Companion that uses an Arduino board to either dump or flash CPS2 EEPROMs. So if you have a CPS2 arcade platform, this would allow you to dump the ROM and save it, or update it with a different version. Uh, it's an open source project, and it looks like something that's pretty cool. So I. Uh, I'd probably like to look in more into this just to see what else I could do with it. I already have a multi, but who knows, this might be fun. Um, and also, I'm not saying the name of the person who released this because I'm terrified how bad I might butcher it. So uh, if somebody wants to give me a lesson on that later, I'd be much appreciated. <laughs> the company Polymega has just released a few announcements about their upcoming console. Uh, I'd like to just kind of list out the announcements, you know, just the facts. Then tell a little bit about the history of the company and then my perspective on what's going on. And, uh, you know, please stick around if you're even slightly interested in this console because I think my perspective might surprise you. And um, it is good to know the whole situation about this company, even if you're a fan and you plan on buying one. Uh, but start with their announcements. Um, they claim that the Polymega hardware is now completely finished, that its CPU has been upgraded to an Intel Coffee Lake S-Series processor, they claim that the processor could be upgraded in the future by authorized service only. Um, you could now add up to a terabyte of some pretty fast SSD memory, as well as the SD card support that it claimed before. They say there's a high percentage of game compatibility using their HLE BIOS, so they're, especially with Sega Saturn, they seem to have been showing off a lot. They say that it includes only in-house created or legally licensed software, and that a second round of pre-orders would open in May. So uh, just like a middle ground, this is not 
not officially a fact, but it's not an opinion. Uh, in my past life, I did work for a company that did medical grade computers. And one of our partners had the brilliant idea of having replaceable processors as well. And a large team of people from a big company that are all very smart and well accomplished tried this with quite a big budget. And at the end of the day decided it's not good for anybody. It's not good for the customer. It's not good for them. It's just, it would be better to work on different updates of different products rather than try to update just the CPU. So I would, that's, that's not a dig. It's not a compliment. It's just, that's the one thing they announced that I would certainly take with a grain of salt because depending on how their hardware is, uh, is created and how the different pieces go together, that might not be technically feasible. So just adding that there, but on to the history of the company, which I'll keep brief. Um, they announced a product that was very intriguing. They claimed it was something called hybrid emulation with FPGA cores stitched together with software. And, you know, it, it seemed unlikely, but really interesting. And I did like the whole thought of the RetroBlocks, the original product with, you know, a base unit where you could put on different modules depending on what you wanted to use. Then they opened up pre-orders for that. And then their main developer quit and they changed what the product was. And that's when kind of some the most of the drama started and that people, not everybody, but some people who had pre-ordered said, this is not what I pre-ordered, I want my money back. And I believe they said no to all of those people. Then also, uh, I think people had a lot of backlash on their forums about it, so they just deleted their forums. It's probably not the best way to handle that. But they were kind of silent for a while, uh, and now they came back to promote this announcement. And I think the... Um, the logic behind what they were doing is they knew that analog had spent a lot of money on their press releases. I mean, everybody, people that don't even talk about retro gaming are talking about the mega SG. So I've always said analog did a phenomenal job. And I think their logic was, um, let's poke the bear and try to get some response out of them to piggyback on that. So they basically got on Twitter and started insulting analog and insulting pretty much people that were buying the analog products. And I stepped in and I was kind of a dick, but I felt it was deserved. Sorry. Uh, but then it kind of got a little weird, and this is one of those situations where whoever was running the Twitter account shouldn't have been the one running it. And they even said, uh, you know, if, I don't, won't get into it too much, but the thing that did bug me is they basically said uh, they're not going to hire a real PR person because retro gamers are toxic and would uh, basically we're not worth it. We're not worth hiring a real PR person for. That's certainly what I read from it, and that was annoying as hell. But uh, so my my perspective on this both as somebody who has, you know, been a retro gaming fan since before it was retro. I've been paying attention to this stuff since I was a kid, and I did work in hardware manufacturing and a startup company and all that stuff. Um, it could very well be that the Polymega is right now simply a Windows emulator with a really, really nice GUI, and they did use licensed software and have been working with devs. And if that's the case, I think it's awesome. I, I think that they should be bragging about that, though, not doing whatever it is that you would call what they did on Twitter the other day, and certainly not their, um, you know, certainly not some of the ways they presented things. If that's really what this is, you know, I know a lot of people that would be totally fine with something like that. You know, I, I know plenty of people that were happy with the Retron 5, and maybe this is essentially going to be a licensed, better version of that for CD games. Totally cool, but that's kind of not how they're presenting it. So it could just be that whoever's running their Twitter account is terrible at it, which I've seen that before too. I've seen people who ran the company who thought, it's my company, I'll, you know, people like me, I'll talk to the people. And it was usually painful to watch them crash, crash and burn like this. Um, 
But the other thing that kind of does bother me about this is a lot of reputable news sources and a lot of people that are kind of bigger in the industry have been praising this product without actually knowing anything about it. They're clearly just parroting a very well done marketing, uh, you know, marketing campaign. So it's that does kind of bug me because, you know, when somebody with an insane amount of followers says, this looks cool, I like this, and they don't really know the history you know, that brings me to what else this could be. And this, you know, put on your tinfoil hats. This probably isn't true, but I've seen enough of this stuff happen where this is, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that this product will never come out or it's a stitched together Mednafen GUI that, uh, you know, doesn't work well. And the fact that they're opening up pre-orders again after the first time, which didn't go very well without a product, makes me very nervous. So, uh, you know, people seem to think that because I like using real hardware that I hate emulation, and I love emulation. I I always have, I always will. And in my life, emulation has a time and a place, which probably is different than other people's. That's totally cool, totally understand all that. But when when you approach the Polymega, just, I would keep all of this in mind. What if this really is just a really cool you know, a Windows interface or whatever, you know, maybe they use Windows Embedded or Linux or something, but maybe they just have a very cool GUI. And if you use Windows Embedded, you could actually get something pretty solid. And it just launches emulators that they licensed that they made sure to not screw over the developers like uh, like Hyperkin did in the past. Sorry to bring that up again. Maybe this is just a cool emulator and they're just terrible at marketing it. Or maybe this is something that you should watch out for. Um, And I know this is a harsh thing to say because there's people that work for this company, people are trying to make their living doing this, but I would be very scared to jump on that second round of pre-orders based on what I've seen. Um, I wish that some of those bigger people with all the followers would have thought a little bit more before praising it so quickly. Um, You know, I think they showed things like a Saturn demo that apparently looked really cool, but there's just a lot of other stuff involved in this. That makes me scared if people will get a product, if it's the product they were promised, if, you know, how long the company is going to last so that you can get all these wonderful upgrades. So I would just be cautious. And uh, if you're involved with the company at all, you know, talk to whoever's running their Twitter account because it's just, it's really a lesson in what not to do. And in fact, the only, the only person in the retro gaming scene I've seen that did equally as bad a job as Pico Interactive. Uh, maybe they're the same company. Ooh, put on two tinfoil hats. But seriously, just, I really think this could be awesome. I liked the original idea better. It still has potential to be great. I would just be cautious because 300 bucks is a lot of money. And I think we've all been at places in our life where, you know, losing 300 would stink, but it's not the end of the world. And I've also recently, for anybody that's been watching the podcast, have been in a place where losing 300 bucks would have really been devastating for that short period of time. So really just think about it before you pre-order this one. Hopefully they'll let some um, some people who are more familiar with hardware demo this thing and give a real objective, just going to step back and talk about this for what it is kind of review, but they haven't done that yet. So we'll see how this thing all turns out. Just be safe and try not to lose your money. And on a much lighter note, the retro gaming anime series High Score Girl just had three new episodes added to this current season on Netflix. And I remember when Ray first wrote about this, I was pretty intrigued but never got a chance to sit and watch it. 
And the other day I was sitting down to mod Cousin Scott's AES. I was going to do a full recap and everything and thought it's a perfect time to throw this on in front of me because I could just sort of pay attention to both. And at first I wasn't really getting into it, but some of the hardcore gaming fighting game references really sucked me in and I started to really like it. So, uh, you know, it, it might not be something that everybody likes, but if you're into old fighting games, I would definitely give it a watch just because... Um, I still just don't understand why Ono doesn't talk. And that's not really a spoiler. Maybe the answer to that is a spoiler, by the way. But maybe it's that I was concentrating on something else during the part that they explained that or something like that. But I don't know. Somebody want to somebody wanna let me know that as long as it's not a spoiler or something like that. But I would give it a try. It seems like a pretty neat thing, um, pretty neat show and something that, without a doubt, if you're a Street Fighter fan, you'd probably love it. A new Sega Genesis game called Project Genesis was just announced, and footage of it was shown running on real hardware. It looks like a pretty neat side-scrolling adventure game, uh, you know, the perfect style 16-bit game that you would want, and it's, you know, stuff like this is always pretty exciting to me because I love to see um, new games on old hardware that really just push it to the limit and show what you could do, and this is another really awesome looking game that looks like a ton of fun. So I'll keep everybody in the loop of when it's released and uh, what the details are, but uh, there's a lot of, lot of very cool new games to look forward to. The Android Sega Saturn emulator Yaba Sanchero just received a new update. Uh, the update is able to run many games at full speed on the NVIDIA Shield TV and some other devices. Uh, and I guess in this update, the in-game controller configuration was updated, um, and the game Rygelord Saga 2 is now playable. I've never played that one, but um, I guess if you were waiting on that one, definitely jump on it. But, you know, we just talked about emulation before, and uh, stuff like this just is awesome. I mean, to be able to, even if it's just casually while you're killing time in line somewhere, being able to play a Saturn game on your phone is really awesome. So glad to see that there's still so much support for all these very cool emulators. The Sega Genesis port of the game Cave Story was just updated to version 0.5.2, uh, and it's looking and playing great. I've been following this project for years now, and uh, it's just, it's very awesome to see a game that, when I originally played it on the Wii, I just thought, man, this really should have been on one of those older consoles that it kind of looks like it was meant to be on. And seeing it on the Genesis is just absolutely killer. I love the way the music sounds through the Genesis sound chips. Uh, I've been switching back and forth and playing it with the Genesis 3 with the triple bypass and my Genesis 1 with the triple bypass. So they're all going to have the best analog video and audio out that you could possibly get from it. And of course, I've been trying to play on my CRT just because I really want to experience this the way it should. But it's pretty exciting, uh, and I think that it's mostly finished to the point where the game is beatable. Um, I don't think there's any major game-breaking bugs left in it. Uh, and if there are, like I ran into one little thing, but it, it kind of ended up just being fine. And I don't even know if it was a bug. Maybe I just went did something in the wrong order. But I'm only about an hour and a half into it, and I really hope I find some more time to play it. And maybe I'll use this to test out my Mega SG and see how it how that works between the different monitors that I play it on. Um, and if anybody would like to see the first couple minutes of it, check out the uh, video that I posted. It's uh, running on real hardware, upscaled to 4K using the methods that I've been using lately. Um, and I think it looks and sounds great. So if you're a fan of the game or if you've never played it before, I kind of think now's the time to play it. 
Another new contribution this week from Sayajin. Welcome for your first post. Uh, and this is a quick guide on how to use the Legend of Zelda Wind Waker save file in order to boot the Game Boy interface software. So a very quick rundown of this. Um, the most typical way that a person would boot the Game Boy interface software is getting something like an action replay, then getting one of those SD card readers and an SD card that's, I believe, two gigabytes or lower it would have to be, and then just loading up uh, Swiss and booting it that way. But a lot of people already have uh, the equipment that they would need and might not even know it. So if you have a soft modded Wii and any GameCube memory card, you could just use the Wii to transfer over the files you would need onto the GameCube memory card, and then essentially just boot Wind Waker, and it goes right into Game Boy Interface. So um, I will wholeheartedly admit that when I first heard about this method a year ago, maybe more, I kind of thought, like, why would anybody do it this way? And uh, it honestly really wasn't until Sayajin's post that I read through and I realized if I didn't if I didn't have an action replay and I didn't have a memory card or didn't want to drop the 40-ish dollars that all that stuff would have cost, if I already had all these things, why would I, I wouldn't even need to. You could just spend a few minutes to make your own. So I uh, really appreciate the guide. It's cool to have an alternative to do all this stuff. Uh, and I think once you kind of see how it works and how easy it is, if you don't already own an SD reader, then you might just do it this way anyway. So thank you very much to the contribution. And of course, thanks to Extremes for the awesome Game Boy interface software. Nothing's changed since the last time I talked about it. It's still my, by far my preferred way to go for RGB out for any Game Boy, Game Boy Color, or Game Boy Advance game. MegaCat Studios has just announced that they've added developer Loco Melito to their team and that two titles will now be released under MegaCat Studios. Um, the first one looks something like a Strider-style game with awesome graphics uh, and definitely looks like a game I would love to play. And the next game looks more like a Metroidvania-style exploration game, which tend to be my favorites. I do love the 2D side-scrolling action, but there's something about a good Metroidvania that I'll always sit and play. So it's just a really amazing time to be a retro gamer. There's so much hardware and games coming out, uh, and it's just a lot of fun stuff. HD Retrovision has just publicly posted shots of some of the features of their long, long, long ago announced HDMIzer, essentially a box that you could plug their cables into that you could get HDMI output. Some of the stuff that they added, though, is pretty awesome, and really only things I'd been able to see in emulators before, not ever on real hardware. But it's things like taking the composite video dithering and applying an algorithm that allows it to be uh, not transparent, but look a little bit more like it would using composite video. So one of the examples people always say of why you should use composite video instead of RGB um, is that you know things like the waterfall effect look correct. And HD Retrovision came up with this algorithm that, when applied, um, everything stays mostly as sharp as a normal RGB output would be, but you still get the correct transparency effects. And once again, anybody that's used emulation has probably seen this uh, on different platforms, but this is something that's pretty awesome uh, to have using real hardware. And there are certain things that look better than others. I remember Stee sending me shots of the Lion King thing, uh, shots here, and uh, being able to kind of see what it looked like in different scenarios, and it's, it's very impressive stuff. So uh, it's kind of cool that they made this public, gives people something to hope for, um, and hopefully we'll be able to see this sometime soon, because 
there's just so much cool hardware coming out and uh, different choices that offer different features are always awesome because some people, it might be the coolest thing in the world to them, other people maybe not so much, and I just, I would love the option to be able to buy something like that. So let's all cross our fingers for the HDMIzer in 2025. I recently added the video capture section to the website and as promised, I've been keeping up with that and trying to do as many tweaks and improvements as I could. And one of the things that always bugged me was I don't like the Amarec software. It does the job the best for now, but I'm always looking for a better way to do it. And one of the things that we came up with was Yoshiyuki Blade took OBS and took a portable version of it so that you could get uncompressed RGB captures. So the reason that you would do it this way is in order to set OBS to get uncompressed captures, um, it, there's a lot of settings that you need to go into. And if you use OBS for other things, like this podcast that I'm shooting right now, then you'd have to switch the settings back every time, and it's just you're destined to mess something up. Maybe it's just that my podcast will be 100 gigs, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe I'll be trying to work on a capture, and it'll end up being of bad quality. So he was able to take the, um, the portable version and make it into a zip file, so that all you need to do is unzip that, open up this version, and then configure it. So I did a guide on uh, how you would configure that and how you would use it both for HDMI or direct RGB captures. And I find it to be really easy, the quality is good, and I even go into the whole window capture thing that I talked about in the video. The only problem though is using OBS, you can't dial in the exact refresh rate of some of the older consoles. So things like Genesis are 59.923, so you'd have to set that at 60 hertz. So if you really just want a very high quality capture that you could then manipulate elsewhere, this is perfect. If you're doing things like using this capture for analysis to make sure your mod or whatever else is working, I, I don't think I would suggest it because with just that small difference, you might get some screen judder, duplicate frames here and there, and it's just, it's not anything that would matter for like a stream or for just like, hey, check out this cool footage that I got that's so much better quality than, <laughs> than, uh, than it could have been. Um, you know, it, that's, there's really a time and a place for this. But the end goal is to really have a software like OBS that maybe is even easier. Maybe you could even skip some of these steps and just have direct uncompressed capture with, you know, no messing around, no crashing, none of the craziness of Amarek. So I'm going to still try my best to hunt something like that down. Uh, and I don't even know if something like that exists yet. But for now, uh, use the long way with Amarek if you need perfect, perfect, you know, to the T captures. And if you, uh, the refresh rate isn't exact, um, then just use this OBS method. But either way, if you're into captures, check it out because it's a, a new way to do things. And um, thanks to Yoshiyuki Blade for putting that together. And uh, it's up there hosted for anybody that wants it. Someone has just posted an open source project that's focusing on getting HDMI output from a launch edition Wii. So anybody that remembers the Wii Duel that Dan made, um, that could only be used on a certain, a few certain model revisions of Wiis. And there are a lot of the other ones out there. And while Dan said he wasn't going to be supporting those, he did post the design and had some suggestions. So it looks like somebody may have taken that uh, and made their own version that was designed for original launch models. Now, this was designed to be cheap, so there's no flex cable, which means there's going to be a lot of soldering to small pins. 
but he's tested it and said that he thinks he's ready for other people's feedback. So if anybody has a launch edition Wii and wants to try a, a project like this that's it would really help people that are do-it-yourselfers that um, would like an inexpensive way to get HDMI from a Launch Edition Wii. Maybe give it a try and post your results. Um, it doesn't handle the analog side of things, once again, for cost reasons. So this is really strictly for people that just want HDMI from Launch Model Wiis. And to be honest, uh, there's probably a good enough amount of people doing this where if uh, a few other people tinker and post their results, it would be a help. So. Another cool project, and uh, it's fun to see some quality output, finally, from the Wii. The 8-bit Doe M30 controller, the 2.4 GHz version, was proven to be a great controller that people, uh, many people really love the D-pad and the way it feels, and on top of that, it's been proven to have pretty low latency. But unfortunately, a few people were having trouble with connection issues, and it needs to be updated. And the only downside is with the Bluetooth editions, it's pretty easy. You just plug it in with a USB cable. So with this version, you need to open it up um, and you need to actually disassemble it in order to get to the USB port. So it's not as bad as some mods and it's certainly not as much of a pain as like JTAG flashing, but it does require you to disassemble it. Uh, luckily, Raycommend has put a pretty detailed and very clear guide on what to do and how to do it. Um, so... You know, it's one of these things where even if you're not having connection issues, if you get around to it and you have the time, I would recommend just doing it. Um, every 8-bit Doe controller I've bought, and it's been quite a few, always has been significantly improved after a firmware update. Um, and I'm not digging on them for that. I get it. They're not a huge company. You know, uh, really, you're, al also, you're almost essentially getting a beta uh, firmware when it arrives and then they clear everything up and it's all fine in the end so I would just expect that any new controller from them that you would want to upgrade it and once again not a dig I'm certainly not uh, trying to insult them or anything like that it's just they're doing their best they're making some very good controllers and we just have to deal with uh, messing with the software updates every now and then. Arithmus, I'm probably not getting that right, uh, on the Shmups forums has just posted their version of a de-jitterboard and RGB mod combo for a Super Nintendo Mini. And I think it's pretty cool for people that need the de-jitterboard. I know there's a, you know, a there's always two sides to everything. There's a group of people thinking, you know, you shouldn't mod your Super Nintendo just for the OSSC, and there's a whole other group of people that says my entire setup is perfect except for this, this is a great solution. So stuff like this is awesome. Uh, it's an easy mod, it's reversible, and it combines everything that you would need. And I believe it's on multiple revisions now, and it's at the point where there's no noticeable jail bars or interference. So if anybody wants to try it out, the OSH Park link is there, as well as a full bomb download. Um, people could make their own, and uh, it's also switchable. So you could wire up a switch to it, and uh, for people like me that just want the peace of mind of turning something on and off, um, now you could change the de-jitter board to either the original speed or the new de-jitter speed. Uh, to be honest, though, while I, I like this project, and I, you know, I'm not saying anything negative about it, this just reminds me of what else, I, ideas that I've heard talk about on the Super CIC. So I would really like to see stuff like this, the Super CIC, the digital audio mod, all be integrated into one board that uh, solders onto the bottom pins of the cartridge adapter. And funny, where the placement for a lot of this stuff is, at least on the Mini, 
you might not even need wires for a lot of it. You could just have the holes on this new board placed over vias, slide some pins in, and then just solder on the top. And you can get a lot of the pins. You can get all of the RGB mod. You can get uh, five of the pins of the digital audio mod. And, uh, and quite a few other things tapped right from that cartridge adapter. And on top of that, you could even have the THS7374 right there next to where the RGB comes from the chip. And we're definitely splitting hairs here, but if you have the ability to do everything like this, putting the video amp right at the source of the signal, you know, it's always better practice. Whether it ends up in a better signal or not, who knows, you know, but it just, seeing stuff like this is awesome. Uh, I, I would like to try one out myself. I would definitely like to, to test it on my SNES Mini, but I, I do see the potential for so many other things. And all of these are open source projects. So if anybody's, uh, uh, I was going to say if anybody's bored, but it's the opposite. If anybody's got the drive to make a very cool SNES project that encompasses all of this stuff into one board. So just one board on the bottom, another breakout board on the mini din or on the um, multi out so that you could just run RGBS over to it. Um, rather than, cause I never liked soldering directly to the pins. It's always so much nicer with breakout pads. So some, you know, anybody who wants to try anything like that, I would say definitely give it a shot. Um, there's people out there that if it works, that would, uh, would help make them and make them available to people. And I just think while it's nothing that hasn't, nothing that you can't already accomplish having one board to rule them all for a SNES mini sounds pretty cool. So, uh, anybody interested, um, you know, all of these things, the super CIC, the, uh, this digital combo board, boardies video board, uh, are all available to download. So maybe give that a try and see if we can come up with one thing, just uh, one awesome solution to all of these issues. So here's a story that brings back a ton of memories. The source code to one of the original and kind of famous Nintendo emulators called Nesticle was just released. Um, and yes, Nesticle is a play on testicle. I think the one of the icons revolves or something like that. Um, and that was one of the, the emulators back in 1997 that everybody I knew, that was their go-to NES emulator. Um, there were a couple of features like uh, some of the emulators from Marat Faisalin, who I interviewed last year. But this was the go-to. And maybe it was because we were kids and they were balls. I don't know. I'm not going to pretend that it's not. But uh, I remember this. And uh, stuff like this, the beginning of the emulation scene, was um, what created my first website called The Emulatorium. Yeah, I've always been terrible at coming up with names and stuff. Retro RGB is the best thing I've ever done for naming. But, you know, my first website was all about the uh, everything going on in the emulation scene because it was so new and exciting and awesome. And I loved this emulator, and I never really understood what happened to it until now, looking back. Um, I guess somebody had hacked into one of the main creator's computers and stolen the code and released it. And the creator got so pissed that they just quit, left the scene, and that was it. And that's a pretty awful story. And, you know, I, I hate to hear things like that happen. And I certainly wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be happy talking about that code now being found. But it's been over 20 years, and that's a pretty awesome piece of history. Anybody that's around my age that grew up around that stuff has definitely used it. You know, it's still a go-to if you want to try to emulate NES on a 486 computer. Not sure why you'd want to do that other than just for fun, but it's a pretty go-to thing. And Forest Evolution is the uh, group now that released it, and they put it up on, I believe, archive.org. 
And a lot of people are, are upset that they did this because it's essentially reposting stolen code. But I don't look at it that way. And I could be wrong. And I've been wrong a lot. I try to always stand up and admit what I am. But the way that I interpret this is an emulator that so many of us loved. And if that wasn't posted on archive.org, who knows? The source code might have disappeared for years. Maybe that matters. Maybe that doesn't. I just uh, I would love to see this kind of funny, kind of silly, but really well-working emulator be remembered. And if that means that something that got stolen 20 years ago is now put up on archive.org, I'm totally okay with it. It's not like there was going to be a, a way to sell this or anything. Um, and I'd also love to hear from the original developer and, and about their perspective on things. Uh, Motherboard did uh, an article about it, but I don't think anybody still interviewed the original developer. So I haven't had too much time to research any of this. It was just a story that I really wanted to post. And I made the post quick, and I'm rambling here about it, just because it is a, a pretty cool part of my childhood that I just uh, I wanted to share and talk about. But let's all, uh, you know, we'll, let's all pour one out for the Nesticle emulator, the memories we may or may not have had, and just the fact that it's so funny that somebody made an emulator based on balls. The Wall Street Journal has once again claimed that Nintendo will release a new Switch this year, and now they're claiming that there's going to be two. And if this is correct, and remember, it's this is just a rumor and speculation, um, I just thought it was mentioning it because if this is true, that could mean three tiers of Switch. A lower cost one uh, that supposedly will have any kind of vibration removed just to save cost, that'll kind of be a replacement for the 3DS. So something that maybe, let's hope, around the $150 mark, um, that's just a cheaper, more portable-focused version of it. Uh, I believe they're going to continue to make the current Switch as is, which would fit nicely in the middle. Maybe they could get a price drop on that or something. And then there's also rumors of a more powerful version. Uh, and the quote was aimed at serious gamers, which I don't know if that was a dig at Nintendo or anything, but... My interpretation of that would be that maybe it's something that could output 4K, and maybe it's console only, uh, which would be kind of make sense because removing the screen would remove a lot of cost, but adding a higher-powered CPU and GPU to get 4K output would add, so maybe that could land in, like, the 350 range. So then you have three tiers, three completely different use cases. That would make sense. So uh, all of this is speculation, I'm sure every YouTuber in the retro gaming world is doing their own very excited video with an eye-bugging thumbnail uh, talking about their own interpretation. But the source, the reasons why they think it's this, uh, and kind of how this would all fit into Nintendo sales makes sense to me. And I certainly would love a 4K version just for the heck of it. But I just wanted to uh, add my quick two cents into there and let anybody know who was wondering... Um, the Wall Street Journal is not always right about this stuff, but they claim that their source uh, is from a place that um, they got a prototype of it because they're a parts supplier. So kind of makes sense. But anyway, it's pretty interesting, and I'd certainly purchase a 4K version of this if it was, uh, if it was available. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for everybody who watches and listens, and of course to all of our supporters that help this channel doesn't matter where you come from, YouTube, Subscribestar, Bitbacker, Patreon, it's all very, very appreciated, and you're really helping to make a difference, both keeping these news articles coming and all of the behind-the-scenes work that's been going on. There's some very new products coming out this year that I'm very proud and happy that I get to help, even just a little bit. So thank you so much for your support. It's all very appreciated, and I'll see you next week.